0: But now we don't have any value. It's a death sentence for this week. Um, just me on this episode, uh, Langdon Eden are going to be recording their own thing. You know, I don't know what they're actually doing. Um, we're always talking in Discord, and I, I never keep up with what they want to do for their episodes. But uh, they will delight and amuse and entertain you with something. It could probably be related to a sci-fi novel that's brilliant, but you've never heard of it, and a prog rock band.
1: That's kind of their jam.
0: But um, I'm here with uh, Isabel weidner
1: Hello. It's really nice to, to be here with you, actually.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they, I mean, if you've been concentrated, if you've been tapped into British writing for the last five years, maybe, I don't know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, you'll probably know about them. Um, and if you've been yeah. into a bookshop lately, you will have seen their books. I, this, uh, the Isabel Wadler branding of books, I, I really love it when writers have a little visual branding for their books. It's so good. Um, and and theirs is very uh, stands out. Like big, bold primary colors, an animal, some weirdness, typology just going every which way. It's brilliant. Um, so, yeah, Isabel. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for writing great books for the last decade or so.
1: <laughs>
0: and um, yeah, hi. How, how's hi. it going? Hi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Hey, shall I say a little bit um, something about this branding? It's kind of come across really um, kind of like um, exactly how branding not normally works. In other words, it's come across in a kind of like grass, grassroots Um, way because these sort of animals weird animals they obviously kind of appear in my fiction so it's not that surprising but Mm -hmm. the first um, person who actually came up with this kind of like collage style that has since um, reappeared on all of my covers has been the artist Linda Stupert who made the cover for my um, second novel We Are Made of Diamond stuff the cover the original cover that is the one that was um, published with, with a tiny Manchester-based indie press called mm-hmm. Dostoevsky Wannabe. Yep, love them. So they really um, were the first who came up with this kind of style of having like weird body parts and like diamonds flying around and ice bears and po- uh, polar bears, I mean, and um, all sorts. And then my next publisher, Peninsula Press, they got their designer sort of mimicked Linda's stupid style on Sterling Carrick Gold, for example, and the reissue of We Are Made of Diamond Stuff. And then the best thing about it is when I then moved on to Hamish Hamilton, Penguin, with my latest book, Cory Social Mobility, then I got the chance to recommission um, Linda Stuper to actually make another original collage for awesome. the cover of that book. So it kind of came back home in a way, and that felt felt really great, to be honest. Get some of the, you know, get some of the... Artists that are in my extended sur- social circle, and back involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's
0: that's cool. Though you you're like kind of
1: yeah, you know, you're in
0: a, a bigger publisher now, but it's kind of bringing people along with you.
1: That's you the know. idea, exactly, so. exactly.
0: I kind of wanted to to, to talk a bit about that uh, mm-hmm. publishing. I, I don't normally speak about the you know how the sausage gets made with with writers on the show, more, mm-hmm. more interesting you know, stories, ideas, stuff like that, but. I think this actually ties into both the themes of the book and the stuff that i kind of want to talk about a bit later about like class and the avant-garde and politics kind of stuff like that we, we may i i've like the worst adhd of any human on earth so we may talk about literally anything else we may never touch those subjects at all <laughs>
1: um
0: Perfect. but um so he st- started out with um first book i, I haven't read unfortunately uh Gordy
1: Baubles is that the one? Is that- yeah, that's exactly yeah. the one. Gordy Baubles, singular. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the first book. Um, mm. And
0: uh, so go on.
1: Yeah, no, go on. Yeah.
0: So that came out on Dostoevsky wannabe from here in beautiful sunny Manchester. <laughs> so how did you come across them, and how did you like? I mean, obviously they're a small press. They got they can take a lot more chances than you know your, your yeah. big guys. Exactly. But, um, you know, you you were a new writer writing avant-garde fiction. That could be yeah. a difficult prospect for some people. How how did you
1: definitely? How did
0: you get it published? I, exactly, person, really I mean,
1: good generally? question. And and I should ex- exactly. So my first novel, so to speak, is Gordy Bauble. But I'd been writing at this point for ten years, I would say, if if not more. And I'd been writing um, um novels which were not published or which were, pub- who, um, which were published on like little, as sort of pamphlets with little art presses.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: Gaudi-Borbel is the first thing that actually counts as my first proper properly published novel. And exactly at the time, my writing was kind of, I guess, more in sort of a, what we might imagine when we hear sort of kind of classic avant-garde style, so properly experimental, formally experimental, but um, with a really... Kind of pronounced queer, um, trans drift going through it already, which I guess makes it different from like any historical avant-garde to some extent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it would have been it was impossible to publish, obviously. So I found these guys on the internet literally, they're two working class people, Dostoevsky wanna be, um, who ran that press on basically a zero budget. It was a print on demand um, scenario. We made nobody made any money whatsoever from (laughs) any of the books that we published together, um, apart from Amazon, (laughs) because they ran the print on demand service. Mm -hmm. But what it did do for me is they sold very well. (laughs) The books are given the kind of um, writing it was. I mean, I would argue now that my second book, We Are Made of Diamond and Stuff, is where I really hit my stride and which I also published with them initially. Mm-hmm. Um, they sold lots of copies, but none of us made any money from it. But it was just a good collaboration in the sense that otherwise these books would not <coughs> have been published, would have not found any readers whatsoever, you know. Mm-hmm. And they ended up getting listed for prizes, get, ended up sort of helping me. Me on the way, at least that's for sure.
0: I, th- I think prizes are something that might come up later, so <laughs> that's a little bit of foreshadowing for folks so. home. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of goes to show that, um, yeah, there is actually a first out there for weird, transgressive, well, not yeah. transgressive, probably the wrong word, uh, queer working class fiction, and you know, some of the yeah. big, big publishers aren't really serving that too well.
1: Totally. Yeah, I would completely agree. And also, for more to the point, also for um, formally innovative. Like, I don't really want to use the word. I I guess these days, I don't know if my latest novel is experimental as such, but um, formally different, formally innovative, they definitely are. And I think once you combine the two aspects, like, a, formally innovative, and B, queer working class, then it gets a bit too much for most um, yeah. mainstream like, publishers.
0: Like You're allowed to do some pretty odd stuff, but you've got to be a bit posh first. Oh, because, yeah, for
1: sure. Yeah. Oh, God,
0: but yeah. Will South can publish his giant um, modernist epics, but he's got to be Will South first. You yeah. can't, can't just be some man from the estates. That's true. Um, so, um, yeah, I want to kind of drill into that a little bit here because – you use the term which i loved classical avant-garde which which is <laughs> very paradoxical that's a, yeah is, there course. should not be a classical avant-garde because that's, that's not what avant-garde <laughs> supposed to yeah. do right but yeah but at the same time i know exactly what you mean
1: yeah um, do you, you know what you do know what i mean there is a i think what i should have said is the historical <clears throat> avant-garde but um that the bizarre thing is that this historical avant-garde if in terms of literature, if you think of people, even like '60s people like Anquin or B.S. Johnson, or in in if we we think of um, this sort of avant garde writing, it has sort of weirdly been canonized in some very mm. weird way. Arguably, I and mean, people might disagree with me here, but there's a very particular kind of experimentation that is recognizable as modernist or as you know. Postmodernist or modern yeah, related, kind of like
0: just after modernism, not quite postmodernism. That yeah, kind of
1: in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That is what I mean. Sort of like, um, it's a particular kind of way of writing, fragmented writing. Um, you 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 recognize it when you see it, mm, and yeah. I'm not doing. I'm my sort of um way of w- working with form is totally different to that. And that's the other thing that you're not really meant allowed to do. You're not really, if you're doing experimental um, literature or innovating in in form, then you're meant to do it in a particular way. Mm. And I'm completely breaking from that as well. Good, glad someone is. (laughs) I think other people are as well. But um, yeah, I think we could do with even more, we could do with more Diversity in writing, and not just in terms of who the author is, or or in terms of subject matter, but also in terms of, you know, how what a novel even looks like.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. So I, I, so I'm gonna go a little personal here. Uh, So (laughs) I'm kind of working on something that's formally experimental. um, Probably (laughs) fits quite nicely in the classical avant-garde mould yeah um okay. and I'm going forward for I, I'm not going to name the exact um writer's workshop I'm going for but it's like a it's for people in the north let's okay <laughs> and I'm kind of worried because a I'm not northern at all I'm uh, from Cornwall which is as least northern as you can be and b I kind of get the impression that when they when some people some like Posh folks from London are thinking about the north. They're thinking about crumbling housing estates, poverty, and so on. They're thinking about a particular kind of story from the north that they want to hear.
1: Definitely, yeah. And
0: I'm I'm not going to be able to provide that in any way whatsoever.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And yeah, if it, there's a certain acceptable. if it, you can be working class, but it's got to be realist. You can be surrealist, but you can't be working class. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, there's yeah. There's a lot of unwritten rules in british particularly in british writing americans are actually a little bit better with this stuff Mm -hmm. they've had uh, published a lot of interesting stuff from a lot of people from a lot of weird backgrounds and um but yeah britain we'll get into british class structure later because that's a whole kettle of fish but um so I, i always hate asking for like elevator pitches so Let's just get the father social mobility kind of rough pricey out the way. So Cory Farr is a writer who lives in London with their partner, wins an award for fictionalization of social ills. I got that right, didn't I?
1: Social evils, I think. Social
0: evils, right. <laughs> close,
1: close. It's very close.
0: Yeah, I, I finished this a month ago, so there's gonna be a little bit so gonna fall on my head. Um the the award they get is a UFO. Uh, there is a portal to um, both, a, I think, a, like a cartoon dimension in the nineteen thirties, yeah. where uh, Spider Deer, who is like a, a bad version of Bambi from the back from the Disney film, and Fumper yeah. from the Disney film, come through to the the present day. Um, right. Also, um, the playwright Joe Orton is here under a different name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you've got it. <laughs> there, there, there's a, a, probably like a, billion, there's a kaleidoscopic amount of other things in here that I'm probably missing. Uh, there's um, there's some explosions. Corey Far gets to have her own, their own TV show. Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on here in a uh, couple of hundred pages. Less, not uh, not even a couple of hundred. Un- hundred forty two, three, five pages. Bloody hell! <laughs> um, yeah,
1: you certainly get a lot done. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to waste readers' time, you yeah, know. you have to me, give them something for their money, I think. Exactly. Yeah,
0: for me and my ADHD, that is yeah, perfect book. you got some bright colors on it, and <laughs> it, it's over in the uh, afternoon. Perfect. Yeah. So, exactly. um So you got got uh, Bambi Pavok. Pavuk, Pavuk yeah. being the um, Slovakian word for spider. I had to do some Googling. Exactly, yeah. Um, so you bringing this, uh, functionally a Disney character, but also a spider out in, into your exactly. book. Um, so obvious question is golden age, Disney movies or Disney Renaissance, Disney movies, which is better?
1: <laughs> to be completely honest with you, I have no strong opinion on it. <laughs> I should say I'm not, a, I'm not necessarily a fan. So which is why in, in many ways, okay. Um, Bambi obviously plays a massive role in Colorado's social mobility, um, but it's a sort of a misfit version of Bambi. So it's kind of like exactly like it's a it's a kind of a, a version of the, the Disney character, but sort of queered in a way and made a uh, turn into a misfit. And it's got it's sort of a hybrid spider Bambi, like you said. Yeah. And um, the kind of function it fulfills in the in the fiction is that it sort of represents some of the main character Cory Farr's backstory that's sort of a little bit the function it fulfills so Mm -hmm. I wanted a a character that sort of embodies some of like maybe childhood trauma trauma as we all know Bambi lost his mother tragically you know Mm -hmm. and um, so but I also wanted it um, queered as I said so that's the sort of function that um, this Bambi fulfills and also as, as you said, Corifa wins this prize but doesn't never quite get hold of the prize. The prize mm. is always sort of slipping out of reach. They don't manage to um, get it and they put that down arguably to their inexperience, You know, to their lack of um, social capital, to their not understanding how um, price structures, how prize winning actually work. Mm. And then this Bambi pops up instead of the prize and it keeps... Um getting in the way of what Corifier actually wants. it keeps sort of mm. causing trouble. It, it's like this really unruly thing and interferes with everything that the main f- character actually wants to achieve and do yeah. in a, yeah, I mean in a on way. the surface as it
0: as a certain like simplistic, not simplistic, but a a, a classical structure. character wants something, yeah. stuff gets in the way,
1: yeah, exactly. The stuff it's,
0: is spiders and uh, UFOs. exactly. And Uh, time travel exactly
1: exactly so there is to some extent pretty recognizable uh, character arc arguably okay good luck with it but yeah (laughs) it is definitely there there is sort of a narrative and this is something actually that is a kind of a long-term project of mine so while I like to really experiment with structure and with form I still like to have like an engaging narrative in the books something that sort of can hook you in a little bit and that keeps readers reading so it's not yeah. necessarily difficult to read it's no I, like I was gonna can... say it, it yeah.
0: mean, it's one of the most formally experimental things you'll find on like the main bookshelves in if you were to go into water nowadays but yeah. it's also incredibly readable I mean all your stuff is
1: yeah that is literally in a way that is one of the challenges that i have set myself for many years in a way to do something different that's still um fun as well and that's still engaging yeah. in 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 um arguably conservative ways you know that is where we still want to where we still want to know what happens to the character where we still kind of want to know what happens next yeah I mean so
0: Corey Farr's kind of um Emotional arc in the in the book kind of reminded me of this interview I I listened to with uh, Gary Newman, pop star, oh
1: yeah. years and uh-huh. years ago
0: uh, about how he struggled for ages um, in little punk bands, then he released Cars and it became a number one hit in ah. like every country on earth. It uh, was massive, definitely. And yeah, he he was listening to the radio with his family in their little flat in Hammersmith, and it announced like. Number one is Gary Newman with cars, and he was obviously they were you know celebrating, but then afterwards he was like, "Okay, I'm still, you know, in my flat in Hammersmith, and <laughs> yeah. I'm still poor, and yeah. I'm still a working class guy from a, a horrible little part of London at the time." Yeah,
1: and yeah, he
0: he was kind of doing social mobility at that point, right? He was yeah, totally he was on his upward arc where I'm sure he lives in a lovely house now and I'm sure he's very rich. Yeah, and um,
1: probably,
0: yeah. I, I doubt Corey Farwell because, you know, writers don't get very rich nowadays. No, exactly. But, um, exactly.
1: Corey Farr definitely didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... no, I exactly know what you mean. Yeah. Cause the book, obviously in, in, in some ways, the, the, the initial idea was to really examine conservative ideas around social mobility. And especially Mm -hmm. in fiction, they're really often represented as simplistic triumph over tragedy narratives, or they're like connected to um, mythologies around merit. So the idea that you have to win a prize and then you're sorted, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's often how kind of like um, narratives work, isn't it? You have a big kind of like so-called breakthrough and after that, your entire life and yourself are, are completely transformed. And this was precisely the idea. I sort of had the, the suspicion that it's not quite so straightforward. And this is precisely what what I did with Corifa. I used the example of Corifa winning this prize to um, argue that it's much more difficult like that. You can't just... Um, shed your and change your entire context you can't just fit into these privileged contexts that are basically designed to exclude you you can't just um be sort of parachuted into them and then you're laughing mm-hmm. so that's exactly it so once corey mm-hmm. in these sort of um context of social power as an opportunity as a result of them when they um, they have to constantly contend with their difference and especially in the shape of of Bambi Pavok, the character, um, getting in the way in this sense. So I think that's what the book does in a mm-hmm. kind of like more um, social criticism type way. Mm. And I mean,
0: the other big presence in the book is uh, Joe Orton. Uh, he's goes by the name of yeah. Sean St. Orton Sean in the book, but it is,
1: yeah.
0: uh, it is the, the playwright Joe Orton. Um, so yeah. for, for folks at home who don't know who that that is, because I, I I know him like through chance, someone taking me along to one of his plays. Uh-huh. Obviously, not one of his plays because he died long before I was born. But um, so, who is Joe Orton, and why why have him in the text?
1: Yeah, really good question as well. So. It is a character in there that basically has Joe Orton's backstory. It's an entirely fictionalized version, obviously, of Joe Orton. But um, it, it is a character that, I, that deliberately has Joe Orton's um, backstory or it is a fictionalized version of Joe Orton. And I wanted to bring him in because um, to me, to make this um, because Joe Orton, he was a sixties playwright, just to give you the um, the headlines, who was also working class, also gay. So who was very successful for a short period of time. So in the 60s, this working class guy, gay guy, um, got a few big um hits in theater, which was a very conservative um discipline at the time, even more so than now. And, and his plays, they were satires, they were sort of farce, farcical, they were really big critiques and of um, society, and they were often seen to be shocking. So in a way, they doing, they did at the time a similar kind of thing that I'm doing now, You sort mm-hmm. of kind of like satire, satire, kind of gay satires of Britain, in a way. Um, but what was interesting um, about him and the reason why he's so important to the book is he managed to achieve the success eventually, a completely unlikely success, much like Cory Far, And um, he had these hit plays and within six months and he won a big prize. So at the beginning, of I think 61 it was. Um, he won the biggest prize for drama there was at the time. I think it was at the time called the Evening Standard Award for Best Play, and he won it. And within six months of winning that prize, he was murdered by his um, long-term partner Kenneth Halliwell. So there, to me, there was a um, a really distinct precedent or really distinct example of somebody who should not be doing well, doing well, but this success being very short lived, Mm -hmm. because in a way, his background, his sort of more longer term background is sort of somehow caught up with him, if you want to sort of articulate it in that way. So to me, he's like a historical precedent to some of the ideas I wanted to explore around social mobility. The the question really was like, can it actually ever go well for people mm-hmm. like us? You know, is this like something that's going to happen to Corey Farr, who's like some thinly disguised version of me in a way, in a mm-hmm. way? Um, so that's why. Um, so he he's in there as a con- as a connection to a longer gay working class history in a way. Um, so
0: just about up halfway. So I think we'll break for a song. Then I want to come in hard on that whole. Idea, okay. So, okay. get ready. Do, do your do your stretches. Get, get mentally ready and prepare for that, right? But will um, do, we'll do. Uh, Firstly, uh, I am going to play a song by the band uh, Regana, um, who also uh, working cl- class queer band, so fits nicely there. Um, I saw these guys uh, perform live a couple of weeks ago. They're an amazing live band, loud as all hell. Um, there's only two of them. They're from the US. They've been going a few years now, and play a kind of uh, kind of sludge metal that you'd be you'd like if you listened to, say, Dow, who they collaborated with, uh, Vile Creature bands of that nature. They're absolutely brilliant. They've got a new album out very shortly, um, and their new song is called DTA. Not sure what that stands for, but I know it is absolutely brilliant. So here's uh, DTA by Regana. Mm DTA by Regana, their newest single, which is going to be off an album that's going to come out shortly. Um, there's also another song on that album, on that um, little single called Desolation's Flower. Um, really like these guys. And um, so we're here with Isabel Wagner talking about Cory Father's social mobility and, by extension, social mobility itself. So I was listening to a podcast just before we started from Navara Media. Um, okay. I have my critiques of them, but generally they're better than, you know, spending, watching GB News or something.
1: Yeah, I know what you uh, mean.
0: Um, and they were talking about class on that podcast. They had kind of like a little round table going on what is class in Britain today? And that seems kind of a, a question that this book asks, and um, which I'm now going to ask of you. Mm. which is, what is the class st- structure in modern Britain? Like, do we have a, a working class and a, a proletariat and a capitalist class? Do we have lower middle, upper class? Do we have lower middle class, upper class aristocracy? <laughs> is there a lumpen proletariat in there? And um, a the PMC a class? Uh, uh, like, wh- how, how does class in modern Britain actually how, work... Like to you, and by extension, like in your book.
1: Yeah, really good question. um to question, with, I know. It's a very, it's a really good question. <laughs> Do you know what? I wouldn't wouldn't mind hearing your take on it. Oh I, god! Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I to be completely honest with you, I haven't got like a generalized class analysis. I sort of see my entire life. I I, I analyze everything. Through class, <laughs> because you have to in Britain, especially I mm. think elsewhere too. But it might be slightly different; it might be slightly more um, covert. But in Britain, literally everything is reflected through class and race. Obviously, gender and sexuality, same thing. Um, so I wouldn't couldn't give you like an overriding, um, generalized theory of class, but I could, for example, talk about um how it plays out in in novels, in literature at the moment, and you made a really good point earlier when you said, um, if you're working class, you, you're, you're, you're writing realism, there is Mm -hmm. no question about that. Yeah, your, your, your sort of um, identity in that sense, um, is connected onto what you're allowed or meant to write what the expectations are about your literary output. So I mean, I don't know, think of like, the successful working class books, I guess, like even Doc, Douglas Stewart or whatever. Um, it's is classic old school kitchen sink realism. And I guess there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it, but it's very, very limiting. Obviously, um, cl- when you class in literature, the expectations are also always that you're white, usually that you're male, um, again, that you're probably northern. And if there's any meaning in talking about uh, about class for me, then it has to be, obviously, it has to be intersectional to the core. Like I'm not even, I am British, yeah, but this is a, also a twisted version of Britishness. I'm not like native Brit- Britain, British, I'm British by, um, what's it even called, naturalization. Um, I'm obviously queer, I'm obviously genderqueer, I'm i I have all sorts of different um, I'm sitting at all sorts of different um, intersections that don't map onto what people in a literary context think of a British working class novel should look like. And that's that's some of the stuff that um, I'm kind of putting to work, I guess, in all of my fiction, this sort of otherness and this sort of. um, this sort of um being a, sitting at diff- a different position compared to most other people who who publish as novelists that i sort of put that make that i sort of developed that difference in my fiction in terms of its form and in terms of its content as well so it's it's properly fundamentally embedded in all of my work um yeah. And yeah, I guess in terms of social mobility, I guess I'm doing better than my my character. so I you know i'm I'm kind I've been doing that for many many, many years, and I'm sort of much I'm sort of like at least a little bit more solid financially. I've got a full time job which I didn't have for a very, very, very long time, not just you know during a time where I studied. I didn't actually originally studied. I didn't have the privilege to do a degree. I sort of had to go into it very much sideways i now have a phd but i got awarded a scholarship in my late 30s um, based on my kind of based on having published these pamphlets that i mentioned previously mm-hmm. so i got in there without having a degree or without having an ma because um, i could have never afforded afforded them and obviously now since i've i have finished my phd then certain possibilities open themselves up to me in, in terms of like a academic academic labor and academic work but it's taken me up until I was in my 40s to have a proper pay proper paying job that was anything other than minimum wage and that was anything other than zero hours. It wasn't even called that then it was just mm-hmm. called being paid underhand yeah. with nobody being you Stash know down below down the down tax down. threshold that's what it was called. You no. Know, so, so yeah. Um, I mean, something probably
0: the American listeners aren't going to. Re- they've probably experienced it a little, but it's, it's it has a different valence in the UK, where working class identity is very weaponized against progressive anything. Mm. Um, it, I mean, it, currently, it's been. You know, weaponized against um, people arriving on small boats from abroad. Uh, mm. Big onto trans people, just mm. and by extension every other queer person at all.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, for the idea that you know a, a real working class person is you know, white, um, middle aged, from probably from the north. Mm. Uh, you know, likes football and beer, and that's it. Mm. It's. Um, there was a a book by a conservative. Uh, I won't call him a thinker, but you know, one of these think, think tank types called Matthew Goodwin who came out earlier this year yeah. um, about how the elite, uh, which it, you'd be surprised to know, actually includes both of us. We, we're the elite, isn't? <laughs> yeah, that? I didn't know sure, right? that. I'm so elite right now. Um, yeah, you know, people who've gone to university to do mm. arts degrees. A PhD would definitely class you as part of the elite. My, I've got a master's degree, totally elite. Yeah, um, totally elite. And because uh, you know we uh, don't exactly have the most mainstream uh, identities, um, mm. we'd also very much class as the middle class elite that's um, destroying the country. Mm. Uh, I wish I could destroy this country. <laughs> trying so hard, it's just not happening. Yeah, and um, things on. Yeah, there's and it kind of comes up in in the book as well. There's a, a definite sense; it's never stated outright, but the um that the the people who who run the um the award and who run the TV show that Cory Fire ends up um, writing mm-hmm. have a very like patronizing attitude towards working class people, towards queer people, seen as kind of like a new fashion. Oh, everyone's trans nowadays, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah
0: and um yeah that, that's that's no better or, than Matthew Goodwin's ideas about class and identity yeah and um they seem very willing to monetize uh Corey Farr's identity yeah
1: um yeah
0: that, I it's that something that's you know you, you you purposely put in the book is it something you, you look out for in in the real world?
1: Yeah, no, for sure, um, for sure. I mean, that's, a, that's a, that is often it's sort of off, that's a strand that appears, even to some extent. I think in Sterling Carry Gold or We're Made of Diamond stuff. I can't remember, but it appeared this idea that, of course, um, the, the working class individual is to some extent useful if they can be capitalised on. So some of our you know creative output. Or whatever is can be very easily absorbed into a very conservative um, machinery in terms of in turn into into um, capital. But of course, as all of your listeners will know, that that this is usually limited to exceptional work. The idea of like the exceptional working class individual who can sort of um, who is sort of elevated in that sense by the by the middle class media for example or the exceptional trans person you know when everyone else, everyone else's life gets worse and worse and worse mm. <laughs> because the general conditions are in a you know in a in a country that's run that is actually run, been destroyed by the Tory government <laughs> mm-hmm. they're the ones succeeding in destroying the country isn't it this, mm, we yeah. are not but they are <laughs>
0: Oh, no. yeah, I know. Yeah, join the wrong side for it and destroy the country. <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah. So there's always there's always um there's always there is obviously like an entire tradition that whereby um whereby working class people are being um to some extent in in t- accepted into these sort of more privileged contexts, like in a way Corifies with this prize, or they're trying to sort of um lift some of us in there, even if it's just to sort of kind of look good in terms of diversity quota and stuff, but it ch- never changes anything. The people mm. who do get um, invited into these contexts, they are usually being curbed at every corner They're, because the, the structures themselves don't change, do they? Mm. And that is obviously something that I observe and that that... To some extent, as I said, I mean this this new book is published with Penguin. To some extent, I'm in a sm- in a small way participating in it, you know, in a in a crazy way. But um, I must say, I think I have I'm one of these people who really believe that literature can affect change, like the actual books. Mm-hmm. So I think like a a, a wider dissemination of of um, of. Transformative books in a way is really crucial, and I w- would always do that these days.
0: That's something that's come up on the show quite a bit because we, we talk a, a lot about various kinds of experimental, avant garde, whatever you want to call it, literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it would be very strange if we had like a, a Richard Osman on the show or something. <laughs>
1: um,
0: totally. But, um, but so I like examine that idea, the, what I call the the avant garde hypothesis, which really? is that artists can make challenging, difficult, alienating even art in in any medium it could be music or whatever,
1: uh-huh.
0: and people can consume that art, read or listen to it, and that can make some sort of positive uh, change by. Kind of showing them the arbitrariness of the everyday by, you know, um, these, these cliches about like uh, waking people up from their slumber,
1: okay. um,
0: things things like that. Mm. It, it, I mean, is that how you how you see what you're doing? Is is there like a different way we can we can see that avant-garde hypothesis and how that can work and how, can it be made to work better?
1: Interesting. I mean, I think these days, I don't think you're gonna you're gonna ever shock anyone anyone out of out of their sleep. I think, um, yeah, that's a good, good that's a a good question. I, I think um, in terms of my f- fiction, the immediate, um, I think you would n- nothing ever works if you on its own, does it? I think it's all always about trying to transform. A context is always about trying to create, in a way, the conditions of possibility for other writers to come through. That's what I, how I often think about it. And um, for example, so it doesn't interest me of being the, it doesn't, I do not want to be <laughs> the only writer mm-hmm. who writes formally innovative fiction in that way that has a sort of like a queer and working class aesthetic to it and content. I, I don't want to be one of a few. I want there to be lots of us. And I think obviously um, I mean in this kind of sense, a visibility in Waterstones, a visibility in like whatever the Guardian, whatever you you think of them, um, is helpful because it, it it makes it gets more people engaging with very different kind of stuff. You know, where they're being presented with like you said, with like Richard Osmond everywhere, they now suddenly have a, a they have alternatives. It's obviously not just me. They have like some alternatives and if that sort of shapes some of the um future literatures that we're going to see that we see being written and that we see being published i think then we're starting then we're starting to talk and this kind of stuff was always important um to me that's why i also i um, ran a reading series with um with the artist richard porter at the ica in london for for a few years called Queers Read This. And the idea was exactly to kind of give a platform for um, queer trans writers of color, working class writers who are doing interesting stuff in terms of their writing. In other words, not um, kind of the the same stuff that everyone else is, which is like straightforward realist novels, arguably. So this kind of like and this, this reading series, it was kind of came When there wasn't that much of that kind of stuff around yet, it's got much better in the last few years, but there was nothing. And um, they were always packed. There was always 150 people there. It was always completely sold out. And that sort of showed us that there's a real appetite for different sorts of um, writing, for different sorts of literature. And um, I think that's the idea. I think the idea is to get more people doing it, more people reading it, more people... Um, getting together and, and coming up with something that's totally unexpected and a little bit surprising because we really need some new ideas yeah
0: um, reminds me of the um, a term from uh, Mark Fisher um, popular modernism Yeah, there, okay. there used to be like on BBC in prime time like Harold Pinter plays mm-hmm. uh, you could go on the just um, there was things like um, what was it? Uh, a play for the day. Um, even um, Joe Orton was on. Yeah. His stuff was on. Was produced by BBC. Yeah. Was put on where you'd find Strictly Come Dancing today. Exactly. And that has been really lost over exactly, the last few years, yeah. and mainly because this patronising attitude towards the working class—they just wouldn't get it.
1: Yeah exactly so you hit the nail on the head you say it, it, you, you sum it up perfectly so i'm not so much interested in like chain in the, the response of one individual i'm sort of interested in actually making this stuff that we are doing actually controversially more popular more mainstream because exactly like you say like joe, joe orton's plays, they were super subversive um and like shocking at the time, but they were hugely popular for a while. And okay, people were outraged, which is perfect, you know, mm-hmm. but this stuff wasn't like, sometimes when we think of a historical avant-garde, it comes with this sort of notion of it being totally exclusive. it being been sort of limited to a very small n- number of probably highly educated um, readers and individuals whereby, like you say, exactly the, the, the somehow this idea has started shaping up that the, the working classes are too undereducated and too mm. stupid, and I just refuse that at every, at every turn. Mm. It's simply not the case. It's like maybe, you know, you have to think, maybe this kind of stuff that um, we are often told is mainstream, maybe that is not at all, that is not as universal as we're often told it is. Maybe it's designed um, to appeal to the middle cl- white middle classes but the kind of stuff that we produce is actually is arguably, you know, maybe more easier. Maybe maybe people like us find it easier to read our works than they find Richard Osman's work. You know, they might find Richard Osman's work, work completely unbearable and incomprehensible. <laughs> Whereas which is kind of like, um, you know, I don't know personally. I've not tried it, but what I'm saying not is. <laughs> There is an assumption that our stuff is not um, fit for popular consumption, whereas I would argue it absolutely is.
0: Mm. And the irony is it's the the BBC, it's cultural institutions who are supposed to be shaping popular, uh, like the popular Mm. imagination, the culture of this country Mm. who have Mm. decided, oh, no, everyone's too stupid now. Mm. But you made people that stupid
1: Mm, totally (laughs) that was your
0: is your job to not make people so stupid i mean it's also
1: this sorry exactly it's this this misunderstanding that the media think they have to represent or the publishing industry think they have to represent an existing type of taste but they should people can think much more ambitiously they should be shaping the taste Mm. people's taste isn't it they should be Presenting us with us with challenging and high quality stuff, and not trying to, to appeal to some sort of pre-existing taste that, that that actually doesn't pre-exist, but it has been shaped by by their sort of normative programming choices over mm. over the years.
0: It Reminds me of um, Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, you know an indie filmmaker making a film that's explicitly about feminism. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes obviously it had like the world's most popular toy attached to it Mm -hmm. and big stars in it Mm -hmm. but also it was um for a mainstream film that was like practically like a samuel beckett thing it it was crazy how the amount of like avant-garde and strange stuff they got in there and political (laughs) content and everyone loved it Uh, like people were dressing up at the cinema when i saw it
1: uh, yeah
0: and and the the lesson that um Film studios have learned from that when they're not trying to destroy their unions, is to make more movies about toys. It's not like <laughs> people are thirsty for yeah things that are heartfelt. I mean, it's not a brilliant film by any means, but it's you know it means what yeah, it says. Right. And yeah. yeah, the the lesson has been um, great. Now we're going to have a Cindy movie, and a challenge, of a GoBots movie. That'd be yeah. brilliant. Well done, great. We've already got like so all true. our movies about toys anyway. <laughs>
1: It's so true. It's it always comes back to like the most basic insight, isn't it? To like the most the the, the wrongest, most modest sort of insight they come come out with. They come out with, but yeah, it's I mean, maybe, true.
0: maybe people are gonna, you know, they'll see quite Far and publishers will assume, okay, we need more cartoon animal books. like <laughs> get get out there. We need Huckleberry Hound book. Um, <laughs> yeah. Get get like a, a Scooby Doo remake going. <laughs>
1: Oh, there's nothing wrong with that, I guess. Exactly.
0: <laughs> you, you do seem to like your cartoon animals in books, so uh, that would probably be uh, say again. Sorry, say you, again. you seem to like your cartoon animals. I remember there was like yeah. little cartoon animals in um, Stone yeah. as well.
1: Yeah, that's really it's really true. There was, and there's, there's sort of weird little animals and we are made of diamond stuff as well. People have been asking me that question, I've, and I haven't actually been able to respond to to I, to give a good answer. I think. I sort of like the idea that there's always something that's my care my human characters are sort of quite stubborn and unruly often, but the animal characters are off or are out of this world, stubborn mm. and unruly. So I think I use them as just something else. There's like an extra layer of unpredictability and an extra layer of you, you don't know what's coming your way. <laughs> I think yeah. that's usually the function they fulfill.
0: So one of the, so sort of last question here. Mm. It might be a weird one, but it kind mm-hmm. of came up when I was reading a book, which was that I, I'm like I'm a, I'm very visual when I read stuff. I, I like to like be able to see people. I, I even like cast the books sometimes. Like I'll put Hollywood actors in the different roles if I if I know like someone should be Brad Pitt or whatever. Uh-huh. But when when you write, I, are you imagining this as a film or a cartoon or both, like Roger Rabbit? <laughs> like,
1: what is the, like, like if I was to see this the yeah. way you
0: see it what would I be seeing
1: that is a really very very good question so at the beginning I saw Bambi as Bambi in other mm. words as a cartoon but very quickly like in the second chapter it, it is actually said that Bambi is a naturalistic presence Bambi can smell Bambi it's actually like um a little deer with spider legs, with eight mm-hmm. spider legs. So it, I, where I started having a literal Bambi in my mind, say in the first chapter when it appears, then it, then it very quickly becomes like its own thing, and that's um, so that's and that's also then what Linda Stuper took for the cover. It's not it doesn't look like Bambi anymore at all. It looks like a a little deer. So that's that's. Um, that has changed. That has changed mm. in the writing pro- process to some extent. So yeah, first it was a cartoon, and then it was just like an, a, a, a sort of a, a weird hybrid animal.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of seeing the the part set in the forest as being like you know, a classic Disney cartoon,
1: yeah.
0: and then Koi Far's bit being like a modern like British TV show. Then when it goes back to 1967, it's a bit grainy on film and. Uh, like I said, I, I I have to visualize everything. Otherwise, yeah. if I can't visualize something, I I'll put down a book. <laughs> and it, I I really need like um all authors to do maps like fancy authors do. Just draw yeah, a map in front of the I book. I
1: know that would be. I quite like maps myself, to be honest. Yeah. But um, yeah. This like
0: this is a brilliant book. Um, Sterling is brilliant too. I I haven't I've, I I own but haven't read uh, diamond stuff. Uh, I'm sure Gordy Bobble is also brilliant. Um, folks at home, um, I, you probably will have seen Isabel if you're in the UK. Because, uh, but um, Americans, uh, you, you owe us, you owe the world a lot, and you should be. Um, you owe the world to read good books now, so your minds can get right, and uh, <laughs> so please read um, Cory Fider's Social Mobility. It's very very British, but I think insensibility, but I think everyone can enjoy it.
1: But guess what? It's actually coming. It's um, since Sterling was my first book that came out in the US on Grey Wolf Press. So Sterling came out only this um, February, uh, this February, so 2023. So people can already have a look at that. And um, Cory Father Social Mobility comes out again with Grey Wolf in February this year. And I'm actually even going over to to do little kind of tour.
0: Awesome, agreeable for excellent, excellent. Yeah, that's Uh, impressive. You've kind of worked with like all my favourite presses (laughs) so far. Peninsula, brilliant. Yeah, Um, yeah. yeah, You just need to work with uh, Cipher Press and Dead Ink, and you've like the bucket (laughs) list is gone. (laughs) But um, yeah, um, so it. It's out in uk coming out in us is is there anything else you want to plug while you're here we've
1: no, got the platform it. i've got nothing no, no i've got nothing else just my books <laughs> that's, all, that's all
0: there is you'll never do social mobility unless you're hustling you're gonna have <laughs> way more books yeah just... <laughs> it's true i gotta get better ai can do it for you nowadays just get to get pump some out
1: yeah true true
0: <laughs> but um yeah so uh, folks at home, Isabel Waite, Qualified Social Mobility," brilliant book, go read it. Uh, we're going to sign off for today with a a band I've been waiting to hear more from for absolute for about four years now. Two Mold out of um, Montreal, uh, one of the kind of like maybe top five death metal bands in the world right now, uh, along with Blood Incantation, who also released a new album today. So mold play like old school death metal, but it's also very proggy. Um they've like turned the progishness up like maybe like 20% on this record. Uh the song I'm about to play, uh Will of Whispers, has, as you'll hear, like a little like a little jazz interlude. Sounds like um what are you called? Uh, not Hall of Notes, the other one. So yeah, it sounds re really, re really chill. And then then obviously it pummels your face. And um, yeah, this a, a brilliant, brilliant record. Has a cover that it looks like a DMT trip, which is just all you want from like cosmic weirdo death metal nowadays. That's what we're, what we're looking for, and they deliver it to us. Uh, and this is only three guys who make all this crazy noise. Um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. I'm, I haven't listened to the Blood Incantation record yet, but I'm sure it'll be just as good. Um, so we, you stick with us. Uh, because uh, Langdon and Eden are going to uh, do their thing. Uh, we're going to have stuff from uh, coming up over the next few weeks and months. You uh, new book, uh, The End of August, which is an absolute brick. It's like 900 pages, but I'm, I'm going to read all of it because it's incredible. You is one of the greatest writers in the world right now. Um, Alison Runfit's new book, Brainworms, has been seen on my shelf since I got the press copy in like, March. It's finally dropping in October. It's going to make you throw up. And it's so great. Um, and there will be more fun. Uh, we'll do more social mobility through podcasting on this podcast. Uh, here is To Mold.